Really what it comes down to is if you've got no utilities at all, you're a glorified parking lot. We don't want any surprises in a mobile home park. We want to go, okay, not cool that that thing's happening right now, but we already anticipated this in due diligence. Let's do what we know we need to do. What's going on, guys? This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. This is the show where we combine fire and real estate, bringing you the best experts from the financial freedom and retire early community and the real estate community. Combine the two to help you reach your financial financial goals. Today, we're talking with Bryce Robertson from Property Works USA. We're talking about investing in mobile home parks and what to look for, the due diligence items, what you should look for in the area, the property, the details, the syndicator. We're talking about all these different aspects of just doing your due diligence when looking at a mobile home park deal. Mobile home parks are great opportunities for both passive and active investors. But like I said, you need to know what to look for. And we're getting that from one of the best experts out there today. Bryce Robertson from Property Works USA. It's a great topic, huge topic. And folks keep reaching out to me and asking for content of how do I look at a mobile home park syndication? Where do I find a mobile home park syndicator? I want to get in mobile home parks. And mobile home parks are performing very well statistically here during the coronavirus pandemic. But you need to know what to look for if you want to get involved. And that is what we're talking about today. And Bryce delivers this this information very in a very concise manner, very well described and delivered. So I learned a lot today and I'm sure you are going to as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate, specifically multifamily apartments with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about these topics, even asset classes that I don't invest in because these are great learning opportunities. Maybe I want to get into it someday. I don't know. Maybe you want to get into mobile home parks someday. Maybe you're already in it and you want to up your game in mobile home park investing. And this interview will do exactly that for you. Without any further ado, here we go with Bryce Robertson from Property Works USA. Bryce, thank you for joining us today. G'day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to talk with you. For those out there who don't know your story, don't know your history, before we dive into the topic, can you introduce yourself for us very quickly? Okay, I'll give you the quick one. So born and raised in Australia, left school early because I wasn't really digging it. I didn't really have the, the, the awareness of entrepreneurial options. So I went out there and I got a blue collar job, ended up getting an apprenticeship as a, as a welder and a fabricator. And then I completed my apprenticeship in a couple of years and then went out to uh, Western Australia and Northern Territory and worked in the gold mines. And I thought, you know, I was crushing it because I was, I was earning decent money as a blue collared worker. And the reason why I chose that was because that's the most money you could make as a blue collared worker. So there was no like desire or anything there at all. But to be honest with you, I really didn't enjoy what I was doing. But at the same time, I had a real desire to travel the world. And so I did that and I traveled the world for six years. I left Australia in my early 20s and I did it like this. I would find a base camp. My first base camp was London and I would work for a few months. I would work my butt off, maybe even seven days a week, sometimes 12 to 14 hours a day, save up a bunch of cash. And then I would go traveling in Europe for a couple of months until 
my money ran out. <laughs> and then I came <laughs> back and then I would do it again. And then I'd go to Africa and then I came back and I did that whole cycle in UK, Europe and Africa for about three years. And I thought I had cracked the code to how to live free. But there was obviously something wrong with what I was doing. And you can guess what that is, right? You're not building anything. You're kind of transy and not building relationships with others would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was up to me to continuously be working to create mm, more income. Yeah. So I was kind of stuck that I had to go back and work. So anyway, I continued. I went to Canada for a couple of years, lived in the mountains there, and then saved up a bunch of cash and went down to Central and South America for an 18-month surf and scuba diving adventure. And at the tail end of that, I met my wife, who's from California. And so naturally, I ended up in, in California. And when we got to California, my wife and I made an agreement that we wanted to recreate the life that I'd been living, this adventurous world travel life. However, this time, without our money running out, and not only will our money not run out, it grows exponentially as we're traveling. And so we started on a path and we looked at all the different ways we could make money. The three main ways is real estate, stock market, and owning a business. And we tried a little bit of each of these. And in the beginning, I was doing about seven different things. You know, I was even into multi-level marketing, trying to start a construction business and you know, stock market and real estate. And I was spinning plates and having super mediocre success. And I said, all right, I need to choose one thing one thing and just completely 100% laser focus on that. I knew it was going to be real estate. And I looked at all the different types of, of ways to make money in real estate. And mobile home parks really resonated with me for, for a handful of reasons. One of the reasons being exceptionally high cash flow and, and, and much larger profits than a lot of other comparable asset classes. So I ended up getting educated and I locked that in. And then once I got educated, three months later, I got my first mobile home park under contract. And I did that when I had a negative net worth I had $2,000 in the bank and I had unseasoned credit because I hadn't been in the States long enough to actually build credit. And you would think that those circumstances wouldn't get me a mobile home park, yet I was really, really driven. And I had found out there's this thing called syndication and raising capital for investments. And so I went out and I did exactly that. And then three months later, ended up closing on the deal. I mean, the first deal was, I think it was like a five hundred and $70,000 uh, mobile home park in California and uh, closed on that deal. Everything went well. And it was such a big hurdle to get over that once I did that, I kind of felt like 10 foot tall and Superman. I was like, if I can do that, I can do any real estate deal. And so then I used that same formula to exponentially grow my mobile home park, my mobile home park portfolio. Nice, nice. That's great. And you know, from the outside, I've not invested in mobile home park yet, but it seems like the mobile home park investing community is actually fairly small. I mean, there are not a whole lot of you guys. No. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty small space and everybody's pretty friendly. It's not like there's a ton of competition looking for deals. There's a little bit, but you know, we all help each other out. And so I, I think it's a great community. Nice. I love that. And today I wanted to discuss with you what to look for in a mobile home park syndication, particularly from the perspective of a passive investor, because since there aren't that many of you guys out there, there also are not a lot of thought leaders talking about this and informing passive investors what to look mm -hmm. for, what to not look for type of thing. So, you know, 
let's get into it and talk about the first few things that come to mind for you for things to look for in a mobile home park syndication. Sure. So from operator perspective, we're, we're always looking to make certain returns for our investors. So we, wanna, we like to underwrite so that we can double our investors' capital in three to five years. And a few years ago, it was much easier to double it in three years. Now, with all the circumstances, it's, it's, we're more driven towards five years for that to work. So we keep that in mind. But here's the criteria that we look for in mobile home parks. Um, we want to make sure that we're in an affordable housing market. And that's one of the key things to mobile home park investing is right now there is such high demand for affordable housing and there is just an astronomically low supply of affordable housing. And when I say affordable housing, I'm talking about living expenses that are under $700 a month for, for your housing expenses. And that actually technically puts people below the poverty line. So if we're talking about people below the poverty line, well, I think last, as of 2019, it was, I think, 30% of the population live below the poverty line. Wow. And that's how many people are looking for that type of housing. And there's not many other types of housing that can, that can do what mobile home parks do. It can do, but mobile home parks can't solve it alone because there's just not enough mobile home parks in America to house all the people that need it. So so it's really, really critical that we make sure we're in affordable housing market. So number one, we want to make sure that um, we are an affordable housing mobile home park with lot rents somewhere around about $300 a month. Okay, if, we're, if we've got lot rents at $1,000 a month, it's not affordable housing. It's a completely different business model and, and I don't have anything to do with that. We want to look at what other things are comparable in that market. We look for single family homes that have a median home price of $100,000 or more. Okay, The more they are above that, the more of a spread there is between affordability and, and not being affordable. Because what we're ultimately looking for is a big stretch between them paying rent at a mobile home park and then their other alternative options. See, if they, if they, if they have other options to go out there and, and for the same price get a single family home, then why would you be in a mobile home, in a mobile home park? You know? And same thing with apartments. We would like to see that our apartment rents and single family rents in that market is at least one and a half times what they would be paying in the mobile home park. And if we're two times over that, then that's a massive spread. There's no way that a tenant could double their housing cost if they're in need for affordable housing. So that's super huge. And then also we're looking for the market as well. We want to have a city population of at least 30,000 people and a metro population of at least 100,000 people. And that's for two reasons. One, because when we have vacancies, we need to be able to have the capacity to fill those lots. If it's a small town and we've got a 200 space park, it's going to be really hard to fill those lots. Um, the second thing, Thing, and, and this has actually been more important to me as a mobile home park investor, is we want to have a market big enough so that we can find the contractors we need to fulfill our business plan. And if we have a, a town of like 10,000 people, it's probably only like one or two decent plumbing contractors there. And once they know that they've got the monopoly, that, that really puts us as an owner in a spot of paying overpriced or, or maybe not being able to solve problems as quickly as we'd want to when we have major water leaks and things like this. So, so I like to have um, those statistics so that we can we can have enough capacity to fill, fill vacancies and also have the contractors we need. I also personally prefer to have a really minimal amount of park-owned homes 
However, I will take a, a, a mobile home park that's completely full of park-owned homes. So what's a park-owned home? Well, there's two types of home ownership in a mobile home park. One, a tenant-owned home where the tenant owns the home. They're responsible for the, the repairs and all they have to do is pay lot rent. And then two is the, uh, the park-owned home where the mobile home park or the landlord owns the home and the tenant is paying rent. Maybe they're on a rent-to-own program, but they don't own the home yet. And the mobile home park is still responsible for the repairs. So you can guess out of those two, which type of homeowner is going to take care of their home better. And the one that owns homeowner. it. Yeah, exactly. And so we, we love that because the pride of ownership is dramatically increased when we have tenant-owned homes and there's also much less management involved in it as well. Do we make money off park-owned homes? We certainly do. But it's something that it's kind of up to the, the investor are they or the, or the operator. Are they really willing to take on that amount of management? I don't mind it. I've got a big construction background, but my business plan usually is to turn around uh, park-owned homes and turn them into tenant-owned homes in three to five years on um, you know, rent-to-own and rent-credit programs. Okay. Okay. So a lot of market criteria we're kind of getting into now looking at specific properties when we're talking about park-owned homes versus tenant-owned homes. Now, when it comes to evaluating the property itself, let's get into, say, the size of property you look at. Because I've looked at mobile home parks before that were just way too tiny to even consider investing in. And then I don't know where that line is, though. So get into that. Yeah. So I would not recommend... Well, here's here's the thing. Me personally, I wouldn't get involved in anything smaller than 40 spaces, but I really prefer 75 spaces and above. And I think the sweet spot is like 100 to 300 spaces. The interesting thing is, is it takes around about the same amount of effort to manage a 20 space park as it does to manage a 200 space park, Hmm. except you make 10 times more the money on the other one. Because when when you look at mobile home parks, each mobile home park, has its own financing and it has its own base expenses. And once you add on all of those extra lots, you're not necessarily adding on much extra time in management or or that many expenses. So there's definitely economy to scale there. However, if people are going to get involved in a park, especially smaller than 25 spaces, then we have to look at it with a little bit of a different criteria because one, if you're under 25 spaces, you're probably not going to be able to get financing. Maybe you'll get financing from a bank, but it's most likely you're going to have to buy it cash or you're going to have to get seller financing. If you get seller financing, great. But then what you've got to think about on the back end when you go to sell this park is are you willing to provide seller financing for the buyer on the back end? Uh, And these are all things to take into consideration. Uh, Another thing is that when you have 25 spaces or less, if five tenants don't pay, you've basically got no cash flow. You may even be negative on cash flow. However, if you're in a 200 space park and 10 people don't pay, it's it's hardly going to do anything to you and you're going to be fine. You'll still be cash flowing if you've bought the right park. So I definitely wouldn't say don't do under 25 spaces, but if you are, we have to get a better deal there. We have to get more of an amount of wiggle room in there, a bigger spread for any little things that could go wrong. But I I prefer 40 spaces above and uh, ideally 75 spaces and above. Okay. Okay. So, and when looking at these, you know, you have the different spaces, things like that, but let's say it's got 
40 spaces, but 25 of them are filled and mm-hmm. you need to, the plan is maybe fill those up, things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how risky is that plan? Because I want to bleed a little bit into regulation and nimbyism and, and all of those associated risks with, say, your municipality. So how can we control that risk as well? Gotcha. Yeah. And that's a great question. So this is really an occupancy uh, conversation. So considered in the mobile home park space, uh, 80% occupancy is considered to be a stabilized mobile home park. You're going to get financing all day long and lenders much prefer a stabilized park. If you're below that, you can still get financing, but you're going to get different terms. However, you've got to look at how many, how many vacant spots in the park need to be filled because that's where we can make a lot of money. So if we have 80% occupancy, 20% vacancies, then we have the opportunity to bring in more mobile homes, sell the mobile homes, and then rent the lots. And off, off about $300 a month, we're looking at about increasing the value of each lot once we bring a home in by about $25,000, $30,000. Okay, and we can bring used homes in fifteen thousand dollars, and we can bring brand new homes in on the twenty first mortgage program for about two thousand dollars because twenty uh, first mortgage actually provides financing to the tenants through third party financing, and basically we just have to pay for the home to be transported to the park, set up the skirting, we get reimbursed for the transportation, and then we go out there and find the tenants and connect them with twenty first mortgage so so we can essentially through that program get a $40,000, $45,000 new home and only have to pay you know, $2,500 to, to, to get that sorted. So that's very beneficial. As far as you know, red tape and things like that, if we have a park and we own the park and we've got vacant spaces, it's really easy to fill them. As long as we're working with the city to make sure that we've got the right setbacks and as long as when we do our remodels, we're doing everything to code, and a lot of the times we're grandfathered in on setbacks, so that's really cool. Then we can we can bring in homes and it's no problem. It becomes a little bit more complicated if we have a park that's 100% occupied and a vacant lot next door and we go buy that vacant lot and then we have to get that approved to be mobile home park lots. That's a little bit different because then we have to also get that approved and then put in the infrastructure, the water and sewer lines and electric. It's going to be more expensive, but also a viable option as well. So like adding on and getting uh, vacancies filled, if we've got a market where tenants have high demand for affordable housing, it's not really that challenging. The challenging thing is, is to find all of the, the used homes in that market because the other mobile home park owners are out there looking for those as well. So if our business plan is to fill 200 spaces with new homes in like six months, it's almost impossible to be able to do that in any market. You know, you have to do that gradually over time because we just can't get our hands on that many used homes. Now, if we go even a little bit more extreme and we buy a park that's 50% occupied, 50% vacant, there is so much upside in that. There is so much money to be made. Now we have to really importantly go back to our market research and make sure we have an insane high demand for tenants to come in at that price point and our phone should be ringing off the hook. And it's very, very important that through our due diligence, when we do that, that we're having test ads in the local newspapers and Craigslist and on Facebook Marketplace so that people can actually call in and we can gauge the response that we're getting at that price point to sell homes. And if we're getting a certain amount of calls coming in, then we can confidently say, yeah, our business plan will work. But if there's no calls coming in, 
And it doesn't matter how groovy our business plan is, we'll never be able to make it work. But then also more challenges come with that. If we have a 50% occupancy, financing is going to be very different. The terms are going to be way harsher. It's going to be a little bit more challenging there. And then you have to have the capacity to be able to actually fulfill the business plan because there's a lot of work in filling the lots. You know, have to do infrastructure work sometimes. You have to upgrade the roads, put in electrical pedestals, water sewer lines, prep the lots, lay pads, bring in the homes, remodel homes. And if you've got a construction background or if you're, if you're open to that, it can be very profitable. But if you're, if you're someone that isn't looking to take on that responsibility, you're best off staying with a stabilized park. Mm, okay. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the construction, things like that, because at least, you know, in the multifamily world, we might have criteria where I don't look at any properties that have X, Y, and Z physical whatever, because it's going to be too much of a pain, too expensive for me to do anything about. And I've heard about things with mobile home parks like lagoons or, you know, mm-hmm. these things at the water sewer. Yeah. I mean, what are things like that that maybe are going to be a, a yes, no type of thing for you? Or is that even a yes, no? Do they exist? I mean, let's get into that, the, the sure. screening criteria. That's a huge, huge topic in mobile home parks. So, and we're talking about public versus private utilities. So if the park owns any of the utility systems, it's considered a private utility. And that is where the park is responsible for all of the repairs to the system. And what kind of systems would we have? We would have a a water well, a septic system. We could have a packing station. We could have a pump that basically pumps poo uphill <laughs> uh, in places because sewer isn't pressurized. And so if you, if you don't have the right gradient, you have to push it uphill so it can go back downhill to get away. And then also lagoons that you mentioned as well and, and, and electrical systems too and gas systems. So if you own any of these systems and say, for example, your gas system fails, then you got to think about what systems in each person's house was that utility providing? Was it providing hot water? Was it providing heating? Was it providing cooking? And then if you're down, what's being affected throughout the park? Is there going to be 100 homes without heat, water, and an ability to cook? And I've been stuck in a situation like that. Let me quickly give you an example of, of, of when this goes bad. It was my first mobile home park, actually, Southern California. It had an electrical system and a gas system that was owned by the parks. We're responsible. So <clears throat> one night, our, uh, a tenant in the park was uh, freaking out because she could smell gas. And she could have easily gone to our manager and just said, hey, manager, I can smell gas. But um, our manager at the time was a bit of a naughty person and she wasn't getting along with some of the tenants. So the tenant went straight to the, the gas company and just said, hey, we, we smell gas. They came out and they smelt something which had a leak about as big as a pilot light. But nonetheless, it's a leak and it's, it's a safety hazard. So they shut the system down. Okay, so we're in the middle of winter. The system got shut down. Now we've got people that are out of heating, hot water, and an ability to cook, for mostly throughout the park. And so we're like, okay, we've got to get this fixed quickly. So we got our contractor out there. They couldn't find the leak. We kept digging and digging and digging. Can you imagine trying to find a pinhole leak uh, in a whole mobile home park in an underground gas system? You know, so they're like digging under homes, digging under the roads, digging all over the place. We finally found the leak. We secured it. We fixed it. And then 
here's the interesting part. California requires that you do a pressure test system on your gas system, which way exceeds the operating pressure. So we had to put way more pressure in there to prove that it doesn't leak. And then when that pressure test happened, we passed our original test, but then created another pinhole leak. And then we did the whole cycle again. And then we had problems with the inspector and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, we went out, we bought electric hot plates for our tenants so they could cook food. We provided blankets and electric heaters for, for people. We were, we were given hot chickens and food and buying medication for kids. And we were just, you know, fingers crossed, hoping that it was going to end soon. And it ended up taking two weeks. And, uh, you know, our hair was falling out by the end of those two weeks. <laughs> and it didn't actually cost that much by the time we were all said and done. But that's kind of risks that you've got you've to face. You have to fix the system. You also have to be able to provide a solution while the system's not running. Now, we had anticipated through due diligence what the cost of that would be. We had a plan in place, so it wasn't the end of the world. But, you know, there's certain utility systems that I personally wouldn't take on. I wouldn't take on a gas system or electric system unless I had heavily compensated for that in the deal and had way enough wiggle room to be able to handle worst case scenario. I'm okay with septic systems and I'm okay with wells, especially a lot of mobile home parks are in kind of semi-rural areas. As long as that's quantified and the, again, the uh, the purchase price is adjusted to accommodate for worst case scenario. Then when it comes to a lagoon, I just literally wouldn't even go there. That can cost a million dollars plus and we don't want to take on that kind of risk unless we bought the park for some astronomical deal. But I wouldn't go there. I'm okay with pushing poop uphill. That's, that's not bad. As long as that system doesn't fail, uh, you have to have a backup redundancy plan for that because if the system does fail, there's stuff everywhere and, you, and it's messy <laughs> and then you're you know responsible for that cleanup and environmental Oof. and all that kind of stuff but but they're not too bad and you know i wouldn't have a packing station either which is which is on the septic side of things so really what it comes down to is if you've got no utilities at all you're a glorified parking lot seriously you, you just have to make sure that your water and sewer lines aren't leaking or blocked and you keep the grounds clean and you're all good. When you own the systems, you, you one, you become a glorified utility billing company, which comes with its own risks as well, because now you're responsible for making sure that you're not overcharging and, and all of the discrepancies in the meter reads and things like this, which is high management. But you know we have systems in place to mitigate that risk. It's just there's a bit of work involved. But then you've also got to take on the financial risk if your systems fail. And that's where really, really good due diligence and making sure that we're evaluating worst case, most likely case and best case scenario. We've got that fully quantified up front because we don't want any surprises in a mobile home park. We want to go, okay, not cool that that thing's happening right now, but we already anticipated this in due diligence. Let's do what we know we need to do. I like that. I'm glad you brought up due diligence and I wanted to at least touch on some of the physical due diligence items that you do and that you know, you think maybe folk, other folks that, that like miss, what are people missing out on? Because with all these things, there's a, an appropriate or a, a level of risk mitigation that's really appropriate and feasible because we could do due diligence all day constantly and inspect every single system. But then you're never going to close a deal because the seller's just going to go find somebody else or you know, mm -hmm. whatever. It's going to cost you too much money to close a deal. So mm -hmm. you know, what's an appropriate level of due diligence to really be performing on these systems or on the park in general? 
So great question. It takes about four weeks to perform due diligence on a mobile home park uh, to do it properly. If we really, really compress that, you know, we could probably squeeze it down to about three weeks. But, but it usually takes about four weeks. And then a larger park or if we're buying a portfolio, then we want a little bit more wiggle room there. So on the, on the financial side, uh, we first we want to make sure that the business is going to work under our management, with our business plan, with our numbers. We look at other people's numbers and we check and see if there's any red flags like, uh, is there like extremely high water bills, which means underground water leaks. So we check for those things. But we also want to see, is it going to work with our management with our expenses because most people in the mobile home park space when they're selling a park they fluff the numbers and they they give you these awesome numbers that look magic and then when we dig into it usually that's not the case at all so we want to do our financial due diligence and then we want to do our physical due diligence and here's where we do that with mobile home parks one really important thing is in this in the sewer systems we want to do a camera inspection so we'll get a local, you know, roto router or plumbing company that has an inspection camera. And then they put that down the cleanouts and go into the main sewer lines with a camera. And, and you can either, they can either watch the video live and write a report or they can video record it and send you the video. You don't want to eat popcorn while you're watching the video. <laughs> but we do want to make sure that our sewer system is in good condition. What are we looking for? We're looking for like the sewer lines coming down like this, like this, like this. And then we want to make sure that there's no gap from here to there where there's no mm. sewer line. And you can see that in the, in the videos and, and there'll be a wall of dirt there, but soon that's going to collapse in and you're going to have to fix that problem later on. We also uh, want to see what kinds of materials they've used for the system line because there's a whole bunch of different types of materials you can use. And if we're using you know, PVC pipe, then schedule 40, then we're in pretty good shape. But we could have Orangeburg in there, which is basically like glorified uh, cardboard and it actually <laughs> dissolves over time. And that's what they used to use for mobile home parks back in the wow. day. And you can have like whole main lines that you, you've basically just got dirt and, and, and it's disintegrated. And then when that all collapses, you have to go in there and you have to like get new pipes in there and maybe that go under roads and under homes. And then maybe you have to move homes or maybe you have to like, it's, it just becomes a nightmare, right? It can be very, very expensive, especially on larger parks. So on a, on a 40 space park, 50 space park, it's probably going to cost you about 500 bucks uh, to do a, a sewer, sewer line inspection. And you'll get a report and know exactly what your sewer system's like because you've had cameras run down there. It's all good. And then on a larger park, you'll probably spend a couple of grand on that one. We want to go into all of our park-owned homes and do inspections on those. And we basically just need to see what's the condition. Is it going to be a really heavy rehab, mild rehab, or are they in good condition? We definitely want to evaluate that to know what we're up against. If we have utility systems, we're going to dig super deep on those. We want to know, here's one with electrical systems. With electrical systems, we want to make sure that at a park 100% occupied, using all appliances and everything running at full capacity, we're only at about 80% of the full capacity of the electrical system. Because if we're above that, and if we our electricians go in there and test it, and they find out we're like 85 or 90 or 95, we could like totally have a fire. And we don't want to go there. That would be crazy. And then with our, with our gas systems, we want to have inspections done on that as well. There's a whole bunch of different uh, tests that can be done there for a reasonable price. 
make sure that we're checking all of our systems. And uh, yeah, really on the physical side of things, it really just comes down to making sure that our utility systems are in place. And then there's a whole bunch of other due diligence items. We want to we want to check in with the city. We want to check in with all the contract, all the local contractors. Uh, we want to check in with all of the authorities and make sure there's nothing funky going on. Just make sure all the things that we're expecting to do are in fact possible to do. For example, hey, we want to fill these 20 vacant lots and we want to put um, 16 by 80 foot homes in there. And then we talk to the city and they say, well, no, you can only put 12 foot wide homes in there because of the setbacks. And then we'd go, okay, that means we can only have one bedroom homes and that's not going to work in this market. Deal, Deal won't work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that sounds like for sure something you want to make sure you're figuring out on the front end. And, and for the passive investors out there, you want to make sure that the syndicator's done all of these items of due diligence because you don't want your money on the line when they figure these things out the hard way. And I, I'm sure this, you know, we could talk about this for hours and hours. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Bryce, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Hmm. I think the best investment was my first mobile home park. Because one, I learned a ton and also we crushed it as well. And I crushed it for our investors. We ended up, we had that park for like four, I think it was like 4.2, 4.3 years. And we ended up being able to provide annual returns of like, I think it was like 56.7% to our investors. So we, we completely knocked it out of a park. And, and interestingly, our investors goal was 12%. We promised 20%. And then, yeah, we, we just knocked that one out of the park. So learned a lot. And it was also, it happened to be really immaculate timing. We bought it at a really good price and we sold it when the market was up and, and, and really crushed it on that one. Nice. If you got another one of those coming up, you let me know. But uh, we had the best investment. Now we move on to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I, I suppose I would have to pick one. I, I don't really feel that I've made a bad investment. I think that I have passed on a few investments that were very close to being an investment. And had I moved forward with those, which was mainly uh, would have been for the people I would have chosen to partner with, mm. then that, that would have been bad moves, I believe. So I, I just can't say that I've actually had a bad investment. I mean, we've had things go wrong where you know systems had failed and we've had to go in and clean things up. But I mean, if we're, if we're looking at a good investment being profitable and a bad investment um, not being profitable, I haven't had that experience. Hey, that's great. That's that's good to hear. And I find that a lot of successful people anyway, when they look at even, it's, it's the wrong word, but to quote unquote failures, they turn them into successes and they see them as a, a net positive anyway, just setting aside the dollar return, whether or not it was positive or negative. So, you know, I, I have a feeling that you're one of those folks, even if you had something go wrong in terms of dollars and cents, you would be able to turn it into a positive experience, at least from the lessons and experiences out of it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had a, a bad purchase of spending $30,000 on mentoring in the beginning and none of that worked out at all. But because it didn't work out, it massively drove me to be highly motivated to get that first mobile home park. And that was 
part of the the fire under my butt to get that done because when I when I went to get that park under contract, I reached out to my mentor and I that I paid tons of money for and, and I said, "Hey, I got this deal. Here's my circumstances: negative net worth, two thousand dollars in the bank, unseasoned credit." He said, oh, dude, you're not even going to do that deal. You're dreaming, kiddo. Just uh, come back down to the club and, and, and try and focus on a single family deal that you can handle. So I hung up on him and, and part <laughs> of me was like, um, hey, I am going to prove this dude so wrong. And that was part of my motivation to get the deal done. I love that. I love hearing about that because that's a big topic. And a lot of folks have spent a lot of money on mentoring programs, not turn them into results. And I'm glad that you did just in your own way. Yeah. Turn them into results. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Hmm. I think the most important lesson, there's so many, but, but I think the most important lesson is to take action. I honestly think that that's the most important lesson. There's so many other things I could digress on, but nothing is going to work unless you're taking massive action. And so I, I like to look at things like I don't always have the whole plan. I know what my end goal is and I know what the next step is. And if, if that's all you know, then you're in a good place. And, and I feel like if that's all I know, I'm in a good place too. Obviously, I know more than that in the mobile home park space, but, but just taking that next step. You know, like when I got my first park, it was like, all right, got to get it under contract. So got it under contract. Okay, cool. Got to get money from investors. Okay, get money from investors. Got to get financing. And it was just like step by step by step until it was done. And, and that's the best way to do it because we can easily overanalyze things and wait for all of the stars and moons and everything to align and then not do it. And I mean, obviously, if you don't know what you're doing, you need to have someone looking over your shoulder. Otherwise, it's just irresponsible. So, you know, I think the best advice is go out there, know enough to be dangerous and then just put your boots on the ground and go for it and then have someone looking over your shoulder. Even if it's just, even if it's just someone just saying, Hey, let me just look at your deal quickly just to see if there's any red flags. But yeah, taking that. action is the biggest thing. Nice. I love that. It's so important. And, you know, done is better than perfect. I think is uh, such a, an undervalued thing these days and taking action, making things happen. So I love that. Bryce, thank you for sharing this today. I think the mobile home park space, it's, it's grown the whole time that I've been a real estate investor and I see moving forward, it's just going to continue to grow. And I appreciate you bringing these lessons to us today. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you do, about the book that you wrote, about your syndications, sure. where can they find you? Sure. I mean, you can email me, Bryce at PropertyWorksUSA.com. You can, you can go to PropertyWorksUSA.com and, and check out what we've got going on. I've also got a podcast called Freedom Hack Radio, where I teach people um, about the freedom trinity of financial freedom, time freedom, and location freedom, and how they can achieve that with a balance of financial wealth, health, relationships, spirituality and having fun and that's called freedom hack radio you can check it out on youtube or your favorite podcast platform or you can go to freedomhackradio.com but yeah just email me guys if you guys need anything if you want to see what my criteria is if you want to do anything like that just email me bryce at propertyworksusa.com and works 
is spelt W-O-R-K-Z or Z, depending on how you pronounce that. Um, yeah, you can, you can also get our book, uh, 10,000 Miles to the American Dream, our book of financial freedom. You can get that on Amazon. And, uh, you know, I also have mobile home park, home study courses and live events and also syndication home study courses and live events as well. Fantastic. I love it. And, and, and like I said, mobile home parks are a great investment and there are a lot of questions out there from folks of how can they start getting involved and what do they need to think about? And you brought that to us today. So thank you very much for that. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you.